This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Speaking of city stuff, interesting motion uh, that was presented uh, at a committee meeting yesterday. And we talked uh, in the past about decorum at council meetings. If you've ever attended one or watched them on television, the live streaming online, whatever the case might be, uh, you know that it can be a bit of a circus from time to time. And uh, one of the reasons, I think anyway, and I think many others agree, is uh, the person who's in charge of the meeting, because that varies from person to person. Some are good at it, some not very good at all. Well, there was a motion being brought yesterday that uh, would see a full-time speaker for meetings. In other words, designate one individual, or the mayor would select, whatever the case is going to be. And maybe that would help to bring some order and maybe some decorum uh, to what's going on. I want to bring Larry Deani uh, into the uh, conversation, former mayor uh, for the city of Hamilton, councillor, of course, long time in, in Stony Creek and in Hamilton. Larry, good to have you with us again. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing fine. You, what do you think of this idea? Well, I don't think it can do any harm. Uh, whether it will do a lot of good uh, uh, is the question, because although you might stabilize who the speaker of the proceeding is, uh, the people around the table are the same, and they're the ones that uh, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes create the disruptive behavior. Did you not try to do something like this? I thought I had a conversation with you when you were mayor about at least, a, I don't know how far it got, but I just remember a conversation that you and I had uh, with a couple of other counselors at the time about doing something similar to this. That's right. We looked at, at least I looked at, mused about um, a, a number of things. One was uh, selecting a budget chief for the city. Um, and uh, and also looking at a deputy mayor's position uh, for the city, a permanent deputy mayor rather than a rotating one. Uh, and we also looked at uh, the uh, the maybe stabilizing the speaker's position as well. Um, abandoned the, the, that latter uh, uh, component after speaking with some other counselors as well, because they felt that they wanted the experience. Those who weren't as good at the job felt that they could only learn to do the job by doing the job. And, and you know, that there's some merit to that argument as well. There may well be, uh, but clearly from the, the way things have been going at City Hall, some of them aren't learning. Uh, and and I, I've always wondered about this, and I'm not just going to target city councilors here. I'm talking about elected officials in general, that, uh, you know, congratulations, you've won the election, you're now an MP or an MPP or a city council, whatever the case might be. There should be a tutorial somewhere along the lines about what you can do and what you can't do and how things are going. I mean, I know they hand you a rule book and say, here, this is the way you're supposed to handle meetings, but nobody reads that thing, and apparently nobody really seems to get schooled on what to do. No, you know, I often I often uh, thought about that because it seems that by winning the election, all of a sudden you become the expert on, on everything. And if you're a wise counselor or wise MPP or MP. Uh, you bide your time, you look, you listen, you talk to people who've got some experience, and you try to learn from those good examples. Um, on city council here, you're thrust uh, into the, uh, into the uh, arena right away uh, without there being any kind of uh, schooling at all or education at all on, uh, on expectations uh, and, um, and also behavior in, you know, small B behavior, not big B behavior in terms of how to act and, and uh, you know, the rules of procedure and so on. Uh, there, is, there is legislation, of course. Uh, I don't know how many people go to it to look at the, at the rules that govern council proceedings. Um, and, and we also have a clerk system, and the clerks are very schooled in all of that stuff and maybe uh, should be given license to, 
provide tutorials to new coming, incoming people so they, uh, they learn. But at the end of the day, though, at the end of the day, Bill, and I've got to say this, at the end of the day, it's up to the individual, him or herself, uh, to comport himself or herself in a way that adds value to the uh, proceeding rather than creates disruption. Uh, and we've seen that happen, and sometimes it's done on purpose. If people don't like the way things are going, uh, they will try to uh, disrupt uh, the event to get a result that they couldn't get by majority vote. Uh, that is not good governance, as far as I'm concerned. There's there's another element to this, and, and, and again, this is something that I've been harping on for some time, and I... There used to be, and this is going way back, I guess, uh, back to well, the previous city, uh, a, a situation where after the election they chose, for instance, uh, uh, you know, the, the different people are going to run different committees. And, okay, you're going right. to be, uh, you know, whether it's public works or whatever, and you're going to be the chair of that committee. And, and you were the chair. If you were selected, you were the chair for the whole term of that council. And uh, in the late 1990s, the Council of the Day decided that, no, we're going to rotate that. We want to give everybody a shot at that. And, and it's, it's, it's akin to saying, hey, okay, everybody gets to play quarterback. Uh, not everybody's qualified to play quarterback. I, I think because of that, you've got people that are less qualified, less able to be able to manage something like this. And that's why you get the chaos that sometimes ensues at these meetings. Yeah, if memory serves me correctly, um, when I was in the chair, I actually um, sought a, sought um, preferences from councillors as to which committees they wanted to be on uh, and uh, whether they wanted to chair those committees. And then I put out a list based on people's input, um, and I asked people to give me you know, first, second, third choices, uh, trying to accommodate everybody and their wishes and also um, give some nod to experience in terms of uh, uh, the folks who um, who would head those committees. And there's value in that, because if you're a committee chair, um, you really sit down with staff a little more intensively. You put together or you help put together an agenda. It doesn't mean that you uh, gerrymander the agenda or, you know, deny people uh, or reports from coming forward, but you try to organize it in a way so that it flows smoothly and there's a rhythm to the kind of decision-making that's made as well. It seemed to work fa- fairly well, but then you're right. Uh, there was also this this expectation that people would rotate through, and you lose a little bit of um, institutional memory uh, because somebody has to come in and learn all over again, and maybe the expertise needed to, to guide that committee into proper decision-making. Um, so, you know, that could be sharpened up. I know in Toronto, um, especially for the speaker's chair, that position that's a uh, speaker, deputy speaker, position that's elected by the council, not appointed by the mayor. The mayor, however, has the uh, right uh, in legislation to step in whenever the mayor wants to and take over proceedings, usually reserved for ceremonial events rather than, um, you know, as, as uh, something that the mayor wishes to do on, a, on an ongoing basis. And that may be something that our council can look at as well. Um, and but again, though, it comes back to, you know, there's this five-minute rule that was just re-emphasized again now in terms of speaking. And this is where the chairman is, is crucially important. And it's not so much the five-minute rule, because sometimes an argument does take more than five minutes, and leeway should be given, especially in a democracy, for people to get out all of their, um, all of their points in, in, in trying to convince others to their point of view. 
But when you start repeating yourself, when you start interjecting yourself, uh, when others are trying to speak, even though it may not be your turn, uh, when you get heated in a debate, then it becomes counterproductive. And that's where a firm chairman who knows uh, Robert's rules of orders and, uh, and has control of the agenda in the meeting and is listening attentively uh, should interject and say you're out of order. That point has been made. Next. And, and the rest of the team should allow that chairman, if they want the meeting to proceed uh, efficiently, should allow that chairman the right to do that. But you, your point at the beginning of this, I think, is, is very important and, and, and needs to be in mind. You can put anybody you want in there. And, and if council goes ahead with this, that's that's all well and good. But the council members themselves have to police themselves. And, and you've got to let the chair, whoever that's going to be, use that authority. And, and, and instead of the things that are going on, there are a couple of things. That, first of all, yeah, p- people speak way too long at these meetings, uh, much to the chagrin of those that are sitting there in the gallery and, and waiting for their item to come up, whatever that might be. Secondly, there is abuse that goes on in that from time to time. Well, you'll see counselors beating up on staff members or sometimes other things. The chair has to step in, and they just don't do it. They just and say, they look, at stop that. You can't do that. That's a, and if they do, then all of a sudden you've got an argument. The chair is supposed to rule the meeting, and they don't allow the chair to rule the meeting. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the problem. And they don't do it perhaps out of timidity or respect for the counselor. Or maybe they also harbor the same feelings that are being expressed by the council. I mean, there can be any number of uh, notions. But if your chair, and this is where it should be spelled out, if your chair, here are your duties. And if you want the meeting to go well, then you've got to exercise those duties. I mean, at the end of the day, the whole purpose of the meeting is to get information out, to have a debate on information, and often, uh, almost always, I would say, to make a decision that's before you to give staff direction or to make a final decision on whatever motion you may be entertaining at that point. And if anything interferes with that, really, you're not doing your job. Uh, And, uh, you know, just for the listening uh, public this morning, Bill, a lot of the time that does happen appropriately, but too often, um, uh, even though it's in the minority of times, it, it, uh, and, and especially for for very important and sometimes therefore acrimonious meetings, there is this stuff that happens that detracts from good decision-making, and that's always negative. When you do something like this, and when you've got people that are, are, are serial offenders uh, when it comes to this, that speak out of turn, that, uh, that speak and, and start yelling, uh, or that, that uh, you say are asking sometimes pointed questions, sometimes insulting questions of staff, uh, there therein lies the power, and therein lies... The, the impact that a, a person who's supposed to be chairing the meeting can actually have here. Uh, and we see that happen an awful lot of the times. I, I remember well, still watching council today when I watched some of the live streams, but even when you and I were serving many, many years ago, it would be embarrassing sometimes to see the way that some councillors would go after staff members, and staff members can't really fight back. They're not allowed to talk back. They're only allowed to speak if there's a question directed at them. So, you know, the, the balance is tipped in favor of the councillor there. They've got the floor, and they, they sometimes abuse that. And that's, again, where somebody has to step in. I mean, time and time again, Larry, we hear about people that say, I know it's embarrassing to watch the way these guys perform. It doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. And sometimes I do feel very badly for staff because they're, they, in many respects, are sitting ducks. They, they cannot engage in debate. Their job is to provide information and listen to the direction that's given to them. And, and sometimes if a, if a counselor, and we've seen examples of this, 
Uh, it happens uh, more rarely now than it used to, I'm, 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 uh, I'm told, in the old city Hamilton days. Uh, but it still happens where staff is just at the mercy of uh, whatever a counselor may wish to say and really doesn't have the, ch- the chance or the opportunity to voice um, their opinion because that would be seen as being insubordinate. And that's unfortunate. This is where I think uh, a senior staff member, city manager, uh, or the mayor, or the chair, in the absence of those folks, because they're not always around at every meeting, should step in and say, no, no, no. If, if we want to talk about performance, then we need to go on camera, and there's a process for doing that. But really, we need to, te- uh, to treat each other with respect, because the whole purpose, again, is to receive information, engage in debate, and make a decision. And anything that detracts from that detracts from you doing your job. There have to be ramifications for this stuff. I mean, for people that are, are going to ignore that and or, and continue to break rules. And, and that's up to the chairman, I would think, to do something about this. And I know there's an integrity commissioner, but that's that's kind of farcical the, the way things have turned out. Is, is Just like anything else, there are rules, and if you break the rules, I, I don't, I'm not talking about fines or anything, but maybe you have to leave the meeting. I don't know what it would be, but, I mean, you've got to have somebody who can rule there. And, and we used to, and there are still some people that do a pretty good job chairing meetings. There are. And you know what, Bill, you will remember, maybe be surprised by this, but you remember Margaret McCarthy, who, uh, you know, let me mention a name, uh, who used to be on council when we were there. from Former Flamborough, yeah. She was very tough when she chaired a meeting. She made her uh, her, uh, power as a chairperson known to the committee, and and I admired that. And it was done uh, forcefully, but not inappropriately. And, uh, and there are some members of, on this council as well that have that expertise also, uh, and that should be encouraged. And maybe uh, Matthew Green's uh, motion to select somebody who has that ability may not be far-fetched, although, again, it all rests on the individual around the table to understand the rules, understand the role of the chair, and also allow the chair uh, to exercise that authority. Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of names come to mind. You're right, Margaret McCarthy. Bernie Morelli was very good at it, too. Yes. Like Bernie Morelli, very good at handling a meeting. Uh, yes. It's it's the old idea that you've got to be able to have, command that respect, so it's a two-way street. Uh, a quick note from Alexis, who's listening to our conversation, said, please point out that the use of the term chairman indicates the person who is managing the chair. It's not necessarily a gender-specific chairman. Because uh, no, I know that gets bandied about, and invariably uh, we'll get notes about this and saying, well, you know, you're making this, it's it's just, the, that's the name of the job, that's all. Right, it is, and maybe chairperson is better, or actually the, the, the term chair, simply without a man or person or yeah. woman at the end of it, is even more appropriate. Now you're sounding like a teacher again, Larry. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks so much for the time today, I really appreciate it, and I, I appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Former Thank Hamilton you. Mayor Larry Deany. I, I don't know if they really need this position that they're talking about here. I think what they need down there is an attitude adjustment. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We've had a lot of discussions over the years about uh, rental properties here in the city. Uh, some for them, some again them. Uh, whether it's student housing, whether it's uh, people who just want to rent apartments, whether it's uh, people converting uh, parts of their houses into rental units for a variety of reasons. And uh, the city has tried two or three different times to get involved in this because there are some ongoing problems and and some of them very legitimate concerns. Hopefully the uh, report we're going to talk about next will shed some light on this and maybe uh, clear a path for some of the possible solutions uh, for what's going on. This consultant's report is advising against the option of licensing of rental housing in Hamilton. 
report finds that licensing could actually put tenants at risk of homelessness. Brad Clark, former city councilor, is uh, the consultant who actually worked on this report. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us some of the details. Brad, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. But, uh, to give me the genesis on how this whole thing came about. This is, n- this is not a new problem, certainly. No, it's not a, a new problem. It's a problem that um, the city has been wrestling with probably for over a decade. Uh, ever since the province announced a new toolbox for municipalities uh, for generating revenue, and in that was the option for licensing rental housing. So uh, I was in touch with the Hamilton and District uh, Apartment Association, and they retained me as an analyst, not an advocate, but an analyst to uh, review all of the municipal uh, bylaws, provincial regulations, legislation, uh, decisions of the Landlord-Tenants Board, um, court decisions, and then do a consultation uh, with housing uh, stakeholders in, in Hamilton. And it was a, a disparate group. We ha- actually held a roundtable. And from that group, we came up with the 25 recommendations in the report itself. It's an interesting discussion because I know invariably when we hear stories about uh, some of the concerns here, Brad, you hear it from the tenant's perspective, and I understand that totally. I mean, you you, you have a right to proper housing, and you want to make sure that the heat works, et cetera, et cetera. But there's another side of the story. I mean, the people that actually buy these places and invest in these and, and, and try to run these things uh, have a number of challenges. And uh, from what I can see from the report, an awful lot of red tape to deal with. There are challenges with, with red tape for landlords. Um, when we got together and held the roundtable bill, we, we set the goal that, that the roundtable was to find the means to legalize rental housing, ensure that all tenants are living in a safe, clean, and healthy units. So it really was a, a high goal, and, and there was no restrictions in terms of what the discussions were. So we ended up looking at a number of things, um, and most of the things were things that tenants were had a concern about. And then, of course, we had the landlords presenting their position, but then we also had housing advocates and social advocates presenting their position. So in the end, it was a collaboration that came up with these recommendations. Let's talk about some of the stuff that you are talking Well, the licensing aspect first, and you mentioned about this toolkit that the province uh, has given to municipalities right now. And, 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 and if you start to shudder every time you say the province is going to come and help you on something, <laughs> I, I, it's well-founded, I think, based on past experience. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> you've, been on, you've been on both sides of that fence. Yes, I have. <laughs> um, they, they created an opportunity for municipalities across the province to license landlords, and it was a revenue generation tool to help offset the cost of municipalities doing inspections on rental properties. Uh, In 2017, there was the culmination of a landlord-tenant board uh, decision, which indicated that the landlords can legally um, recoup any municipal fee cost from tenants. And the tenants in Waterloo took that landlord-tenant board decision to the divisional court, and the divisional court in the end of 2017, December 7th, I believe, uh, indicated that uh, the landlord-tenant board was correct in their decision. And what the outcome of that was was a 7% increase in rent just to offset municipal licensing and inspection fees in Waterloo. You knew that was coming. There, uh, you can inter- let's be honest, Bill. People interpret legislation different ways. 
ultimately, when the court makes the decision, that's the final decision. Uh, so as it stands right now, any municipality that implements licensing, the landlords are permitted to file for an above-guideline increase on any municipal fee that, that is attached to them, and ultimately the tenants will pay. And in Waterloo, I mean, the increases in rent were significant. They, they, you know, a $49 a month increase in rent out of nowhere uh, actually cost a number of those tenants to leave that building because they could no longer afford the rent. Therein lies the problem, and, and we see this happen all the time, of course, in, in, in the real world. And, you know, the grocery stores are doing it right now. The minimum wage went up, and, of course, prices are going up and services are going to be – they're not going to absorb this, these costs. And the government has to know that, Brad, going in. They do, and I think they go in with the best of intentions, Bill. Um, but there's always a, – a, if, a, a, <laughs> if there's a cause, there's an, a, a direct response to a cause. So – um, if you're putting in up fees for landlords, um, the landlords are going to use the Residential Tenancy Act to try to offset that fee, and, and that's a legal uh, opportunity for them. But did you know, and because you've heard a uh, testimony, obviously, from a number of tenants associations, that, that that kind of increase, significant increase, as you've described it, uh, could be the difference between staying in the apartment or not. And that's exactly what happened in Waterloo Bill. They, they, the tenants could, no, could not afford that increase. I mean, uh, in Waterloo, the average rents, um, you know, it, it depends on what you're, you're renting, but you could be anywhere from $655 a month for a small apartment, upwards of $2,900 a month for a three-bedroom apartment. So a 7% increase out of nowhere could be anywhere from $49 a month to $217 a month. That is a significant increase, and it's something that this group... Uh, realized uh, there's a real risk to some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Well, and that goes right up and down the age scale, too, because, I mean, Waterloo, as your example indicates, I mean, that's like Hamilton. It's a university town, and student housing obviously drives some of that, off-campus housing, that is, uh, and driving prices up. And and we talk for a long time now about this housing boom and how that's affected people that actually want to buy houses, but it has to have had an effect on the rental properties as well, I would think, Brad. Yes, but the, the, there has been no significant investment in rental properties in, in the Hamilton area. So you're finding, we're finding that a lot of people can't afford to buy a house, um, and so you're finding more extended families. Um, um, children are living at home longer with their parents until they have the ways and means to purchase a house or until they actually can find a vacant apartment. I mean, our vacancy rate in, in, in Hamilton now is uh, 2.5%, so uh, it's a bit of a challenge finding a place to stay. So what are the solutions here? Because I know what the city's argument is going to be. They're going to say, look, at, you know, on behalf of the tenants, we need to license these places uh, because we need to do inspections. We need to make sure that they're meeting certain standards for the sake of those tenants. Uh, so this is what they're going to do, and this is the fee it's going to be. And I know that every time there's a report like that, Brad, they say, well, this is just cost recovery. We're not really trying to line our pockets here. It's just a matter of the, the cost of doing business. So that's their justification on that. And then you've got the tenants that are saying, well, that's great. It's just going to hit us in the pocketbook when you do this. So you've got two polarized opinions here. It's got to be a middle ground someplace. Uh, there are, and there and, and there were 25 recommendations attached to the report. So the report doesn't say um, no to licensing and leave the leave the status quo the way it is. 
the report actually suggests uh, 25 different ways of improving, promoting code compliance, safe, healthy uh, rental housing in Hamilton. Uh, one of the, the recommendations uh, in the report is uh, a free rental unit inspection. So um, if a, for example, off-camp, let's do, use off-campus student housing of a student or the parents of a student uh, visited the, the home that they're in, and they don't feel that the house is compliant with fire code regulations and they're nervous about their son, daughter's safety, the recommendation here is that the city, the tenant could ask for a free rental inspection and they would come out and inspect based on the fire code, based on the building code, and then deal with the landlord on any issues of compliance. So there are the ways and means of doing it uh, within the city bylaws that already exist. And the city is doing a hell of a fine job uh, with proactive property standards enforcement. They're already doing these things right now without um, utilizing a licensing uh, fee that would simply increase the rent. Well, that's what I thought, and that's why I was amazed when I was looking over the report uh, that you've worked on here, because uh, this is, this is, I think, anyway, the idea of, of licensing these things and charging a fee for that is somewhat redundant. Because we've always heard stories, and even from your time on council, I'm sure you heard from constituents, and, and the city does respond. They have the wherewithal to do it now, so I don't understand why you have to add an extra layer. And the city advised me, I mean, I met with civil servants in Hamilton, they advised me they're not having challenges getting into rental properties um, to do inspections when they're required. Um, they have a multi-residential blitz that they're doing on a regular basis for the high-rises, uh, something that I believe Councillor Collins was instrumental in starting yeah. uh, because of issues within his ward. So the city is already acting and doing things to improve um, the quality of rental housing. It's a question of what other options are available that they could utilize to ensure that um, our, our tenants are living in safe and healthy, clean uh, environment. What did you uh, hear as you, as you were doing the research on this and talking to these folks, Brad? Because... You know, we'll, we'll see a story uh, and hear it here on the radio about a, a bad landlord, and you know the heat doesn't get turned on, or there, you know, there's some problems, whatever the, the case might be. And I think that conjures up a picture in my mind that boy, they're all like that. Uh, are these just a few bad apples, or is, is there a, a problem in the, in the rental housing market right now when it comes to to upkeep? Yeah, no, the the vast majority of landlords in Hamilton are doing an excellent job, and they're responding to tenants' concerns properly, and they're dealing with the issues as they come forward. Uh, what we did find in our research is that many tenants and some new landlords who really don't understand the rules and regulations, they've invested in a building because it looked like a great investment, they're new to this, this, this situation, they're having challenges. So in the report, um, in items 19 and 20, we talk about the formation of a tenants and landlord rights and responsibility charter. So the charter itself would, would provide for uh, what the rights and responsibilities for both tenants and lords are, and it also includes a complaint resolution process. Um, uh, many tenants think that the only way they can resolve an issue with the landlord is to go to the landlord-tenant board. And yet there are other avenues uh, available to them, including the Ontario Rental Housing Enforcement Unit. Many tenants don't know that they can call a, a toll-free number um, and speak to the Ontario Rental Housing Enforcement Unit, and they will come out and, and deal with the landlords. And that's separate from the City of Hamilton. So the tenants have many opportunities around them to help resolve issues um, before they go to the Landlord-Tenant Board and pay a fee 
uh, to get a hearing. So how do you get that information out there? I, I, I would think that there could be some landlords that might be a little reticent to give that information out because they figure, hey, I don't want these guys crawling down my back. But at well, the same time, the tenants should know that, and most of them probably don't. Yeah, and we're suggesting that Hamilton provide a public education uh, program to encourage tenants and landlords to follow the, the complaint protocol um, and and to be informed that landlords provide this information. Um, we're suggesting that there be a Hamilton Rental Housing Roundtable on an ongoing basis, not a subcommittee of council, but a community initiative where uh, many different stakeholders from the rental housing uh, sector are involved and liaisoning, uh, liaising with the city of Hamilton um, um, enforcement officers uh, and the politicians to improve the lot for everybody. So there has to be a collaborative approach to improving rental housing, uh, a process that is really uh, made in Hamilton for Hamilton issues. But as you can tell me from your experience, uh, usually uh, the portal for these complaints is going to come, first of all, you're t- from their city councilor. They're going to call City Hall and say, you know, Councilor Clark, what are you going to do about this? Do, do the city staff know about these other avenues that can be followed and what numbers and what, what agencies are already there to help tenants? That is an excellent question, and and not everybody at the city, nor do all the councilors, really know um, the different processes that exist. Um, you know, a... a, a a counselor, for example, will immediately call the landlord and ask that the landlord resolve yeah. the issue. And that's a good process. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're representing their constituent. But the tenant, um, you know, they should be talking to the property manager, the site superintendent first. And if that doesn't work, then they move up the ladder um, to the, the property owner itself. Um, the property owner, the, we have a great process in Hamilton, the Housing Help Center which I know you're familiar with, yeah. and they will help mediate between the landlord and tenant and resolve some of these issues. Um, and, and then if there's health and safety issues, the tenant can contact municipal bylaw enforcement for the, the free rental inspection to come out and, and deal with some of these issues. So there's a number of processes that are available to them prior to them um, spending money uh, that they don't have, quite frankly, on a landlord-tenant board application. Because I know, and I'm sure you've heard from tenants over the years that are just frankly afraid to get involved because they figure, you know what, the system's just going to swallow me up. I'm not going to get any satisfaction. I'm just going to get more grief. So why bother? And the tenants need to understand that they really do have some protection under the Residential Tenancy Act. So there needs to be an education to the tenants. There needs to be an education for new landlords in the city. I know that the the um, uh, Hamilton and District uh, Apartment Association does regular seminars for new landlords to educate them about the process. Um, but realistically, there it, there already exists uh, the means and ways to assist the tenants and assist the landlords in improving the lot across the entire city. Um, one of the recommendations is that the city really. Um, make it easier for homeowners to allow uh, in-law suites or secondary units in their houses. Um, it's a right under Ontario law, but in, uh, in Hamilton, our residential zoning bylaw is not quite there yet. And so we need to be promoting that as an affordable um, opportunity for tenants to find affordable rent. Uh, and everyone that owns a home is entitled to have an in-law suite now in Ontario. Yeah, and, and you're right. The city's got to play catch up here. I mean, that's a, another issue that's been going on for the longest time, and the bylaw has to start catching up with the reality in that situation. Uh, absolutely, and and I and don't get me wrong. The planning department is working on the new Hamilton 
a residential zoning bylaw. Uh, they're merging the old bylaws from the old municipalities into one, uh, but that won't be out until 2019. So in the meantime, um, they need to be have a little bit more discretion as opposed to just simply staying to a homeowner. You have to rezone your house to put in an in-law suite uh, because that's a huge cost to the homeowner, uh, and, and it's incredibly complicated for such a small uh, investment. Uh, with a significant cost to them. A lot of thought-provoking stuff in this report, Brad. It's uh, it's called Promoting Code Compliant, Affordable, Safe, Clean, and Healthy Rental Housing. It's called For Rent. Uh, it, it's, so here it is, uh, nicely done, uh, but it's not binding. I mean, what, where do we go from here? I mean, uh, uh, do, do city councilors all get a copy of this? I mean, uh, is, is this going to begin a conversation, a much-needed conversation about what needs to be done? I, I sincerely believe that it will. Each city council has provided a hard copy the PDF has been provided to the clerk, so it'll be up on the, the city's website so that the public can review the documents. Uh, CHML, you actually already have it on your website. Yep, uh, thank yep. you very much. Um, so there will be a discussion uh, moving forward. And I think if the city uh, council looks at these recommendations and understands um, the new decisions of the divisional court, these decisions weren't there two and three years ago when they looked at this issue before. Now they understand that the costs will be uh, recouped on the backs of tenants. Let's look at the 25 recommendations that are here and have city staff review them and consider them and actually come forward with a collaborative process to improve rental housing for everybody in the city and and by that process uh, enable more affordable housing uh, through the, the secondary units. Well, let's hope this is the beginning of it. Brad, thanks so much for the, the work you guys did on this and thanks so much for the time today. I sincerely appreciate your help. Thank you. Take care, Brad. Brad Clark, uh, now with a Maple Leaf Strategies uh, consultant, former city councillor. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, let's. Uh, I want to delve into what's going on with the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. I mean, we all know the, the background on this. Of course, Patrick Brown's uh, midnight uh, resignation uh, a few days ago. And the fallout from that continues. Uh, the party has announced, by the way, that its members will be selecting a new leader to replace Patrick Brown. It's going to be on March 10th. And the only declared candidate right now is Doug Ford. Uh, MP Alex Nuttall, he's a federal member uh, who is involved in this now. Uh, it seems just, this is just spreading and spreading and spreading. He spoke out about the whole situation, both the provincial and federal situations, which is not just the Patrick Brown situation, but, of course, the uh, charges against uh, former MP Rick Dystra. Uh, and he's suggesting that uh, this whole thing is stinks, and he he called it an inside job, which I found interesting. If you go to my blog from two days ago, uh, it's on the Bill Kelly Show page on 900CHML.com, uh, I presented that very case and said that this whole thing stunk of an inside job, and it is starting to look more and more like that. Then you've got Vic Fidelli, who is, uh, Fidelli, who is the interim leader now, uh, says he's not going to run for the leadership, but says that he is going to institute a uh, a purge of what's going on to get rid of the rot within the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Well, that raised a few eyebrows and, and actually got a few people ticked off. One of them is uh, Garfield Dunlop, who is the former chief of staff for Patrick Brown. He was on Alex Pearson's show On Point last night here on CHML, and he had this to say. I actually feel sick that, that Vic would say something like that. There was rot in the party. Um, I, don't, I don't believe it for a second. 
Uh, is there has there been mistakes with nominations or something, or or has there been some mistakes on the spelling of someone's word and a name and a membership? Absolutely, there probably is. But when you get two hundred thousand members, you have that. Okay, but, uh, but I did I didn't see what I didn't see is a is particularly in the last year I did not see very member few members of the the PC caucus. My former colleagues come forward with actually doing fundraising and helping the party out itself. Garfield Dunlop talking with Alec Pearson last night on uh, CHML's On Point. Uh, so he's ticked. This does not sound like one happy family by any stretch of the imagination. But out of all of this, they're going to try to select a new leader. Let's not forget the the, the, the time frame here. Uh, they're going to do this in March, March the 10th. Well, June 7th is the election, so that's not a whole lot of running time for whoever the new leader is to try to get things together. Uh, let me bring Christo Avalos into the conversation now. Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, and always a welcome guest on the program. Christo, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. This is this is a, just a bizarre situation. I know that politics is a blood sport, but boy, this is getting exceptionally ugly now. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's fast-moving, too. Again, I was on another show on, on this channel a couple days ago, and uh, when that when I got called to be asked to be on it, I, it looked like we were going to talk about Vic Fideli and how he was going to have the inside track, and then it, you know, a couple hours later, he wasn't running, and now there's there's all this. Yeah, it's it's definitely you know obviously they wouldn't even have wanted to be in this scenario, but even since Patrick Brown's resignation, uh, this has gotten even messier, which isn't good. Well, and it's it's spread now, and, and I want to maintain because we always have to make this determination that the federal party and the provincial party are are, are two separate entities. I, I know that oftentimes those lines get blurred in some people's uh, perception, but but they are two separate entities. Uh, the only thing they have in common is they are small c conservatives. One is the Conservative Party of Canada, the other is the Progressive Conservatives of Ontario. But the common element of those, of course, is Rick Deister, who used to be a federal member. Uh, got defeated in the last federal election uh, and became party president of the Ontario Party. We're told that he and Patrick Brown were pretty good friends, and that may have had something to do with that. So this this is spreading into the federal party no matter what. No, certainly. I mean, you know, the New Democratic Party is, is a party where, you know, the provincial sections and the federal sections are connected. For the liberals and conservatives, some provinces they are, some they're not. But you're right, 100%, they are two distinct parties. But, of course, there is overlap. Patrick Brown himself was a former... Yeah. Uh, Harper uh, cabinet minister or former Harper uh, MP at least so he has that direct connection and a fairly recent one to the federal party and I think yeah in a sense that's happening in addition to uh, just the general culture that we've seen in the last few weeks uh, you know with Kent Hur and stuff in the federal politics this idea of sexual assault accusations um, you know the Me Too moment on on Parliament Hill and in Queens Park, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely spreading beyond beyond Toronto and into Ottawa. Well, and that's the the common theme through this, of course, is the sexual misconduct allegations against Dexter, against Patrick Brown, and, and her, and, and we're told others that that will be forthcoming, and we don't want to lose sight of that. But uh, but the reality here is that's a discussion that needs to be had. But there are political implications to this because these people that are being accused in these situations right now have had this huge fall from grace. And at some point, they have to pick up the pieces because there's an election coming up. No, certainly. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, choice because, I mean, m- my view is that, you know, whenever possible, parties should try to promote, you know, uh, rank-and-file activism, grassroots activism, uh, and, and the power of the party being in the members of that party. But it just seems really interesting to me that they're even having a leadership contest. It seemed like 
when Vic Fideli stepped forward, he was kind of chosen by the caucus. He wasn't called an interim leader at first. It seemed to me like, you know, that was a reasonable choice to kind of contest the election. Was it ideal? Probably not. But he was somebody who was, um, you know, respected within the caucus, obviously, for him to be elevated. Uh, struck me as something of a moderate on social issues, uh, and, you know, and, and something, somebody that can maybe get support, uh, especially in a kind of anything but Kathleen Wynne environment. And then next thing we know, they're having a leadership contest. Doug Ford's in. Fidelity is actually out again. Like, anything can happen. And, yeah, it's, the, the volatility is, is up to 11 right now. And this is not new in politics. I mean, you've been following politics for a long, long time, as have I, and you, you know that the knives are out uh, from time to time. I mean, you know, Tom Mulcair went to a policy convention after the last election and came back without a job. I, you know, he didn't expect that. I don't think he saw that coming at all. Uh, but they just all of a sudden said, we don't think you're the guy anymore. And it is starting to look more and more like somebody was pulling some strings with this Patrick Brown thing, and it looks more and more like it was somebody from within the party. I mean, I'm not sure, right? When when when, when Nuttall says, like, an inside job, I, I mean, I don't think in a sense... I don't know if he's implying that it that, that the the story is fabricated or that more rather you know this information has been known but somebody was sitting on it. I'm not sure. To me, it's you know it's interesting that you know if you had this information, something that could bury Patrick Brown, you know maybe and you wanted to use it for your political advantage. It seems like you know it's a, you you played that card a little late in the game, and I think that's that's quite interesting. I don't know because it doesn't give. As, we were, as we're seeing, a whole lot of time for a turnaround. Either you would have had to have a kind of interim leader selected by the caucus go into the election as the actual leader, or as we're seeing, effectively, you have a leadership convention, uh, you know, in half the time we had to have a regular election, except you didn't know this one was coming. Who's pulling the strings here, though? I guess that's the question I think everybody's asking at this point, Christo. And you see what happened with Brown and, and, and Bingo, you know? I mean, some of us went to bed that night assuming Patrick Brown was the leader of the party, woke up the next morning and he wasn't. Then up comes Vic Fidelli, and I, I agree with your assessment. He He's a moderate, always has been concerned. He was the finance critic, a well-respected guy in, in the legislature. But he seemed to fit the mold of what the, the Tories were trying to do. The, the platform that they came out with was a little more moderate than it has been over the last 25 years, and he seemed to be the guy. And he comes out and says, I want to be the leader, uh, and I'm going to do this. I'll be the interim leader, but I also want to lead them. And then he changes his mind about that. So he is selected as the interim leader, and he says, okay, but I want to run for the real leadership. And then a couple of days later, he says, no. It's almost as if somebody says, you're not, you're not going to do this. And, and I, mean, I, I, I want to know who's the guy behind the curtain. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I don't want to speculate, but I'm guessing, you know, like uh, the PCs, like any of the political parties, there's not there's not one person that has autocratic power, even when there's a a a, a you know, a non-interim leader. As you said, Patrick Brown, you know, allegations came out in less than eight hours, 12 hours later, he was done. Right. But, um, you know, it could be it, this could all be tensions based on the fact that this is all very fast moving, that decisions are made. And then people realize that that decision wasn't as unanimous as one thought. It could be tensions between um, the party, the caucus, you know, which are the elected MPPs who sit in Queen's Park, and the party executive. Sometimes there's overlap, but most of the party executive are not caucus members usually. And there could have been a disagreement from the party executive saying, actually, no, we don't agree with this choice that you've made. Or even more generally, we don't think that the caucus should make that choice. 
So we we want an election. In terms of somebody pulling strings in a kind of more direct sense, I mean, I'm not sure who would be doing that or or what their motivation would be. Yeah, I mean, that, those are, again, hearkening back to the old days. I mean, we all know that uh, the Keith Davey was, well, he called the rainmaker. I mean, he was uh, the, the guy behind the curtain for the federal Liberal Party for many, many years. Hugh Siegel here in Ontario for the Conservative Party for the longest time. And you say it was not, you know... There was others involved as well, but those those were the people that had an extreme amount of influence. Dalton Camp was another one for the Federal Conservative Party. I, I don't know that those people exist anymore. Maybe that's just hearkening back to a, the old time in politics. But it's amazing to see how all of a sudden decisions are reversed in such a short period of time. You, you wonder if there is a grand plan here. Yeah, I mean, again, like in terms of you know, is there is there a conspiracy? Kind of like Nuttall is kind of suggesting. Is there was this? Or did somebody, a group of people in the PCs, get together a few weeks ago and said, look, we just found out about this Patrick Brown thing, or we've known about this for some time, but now we have to put the, put the, the plan into motion? I mean, I'm not sure, and I wouldn't want to speculate that. And it seems a bit almost uh, fantastical, although, you know, I can't say it's, it's, it's not true either, because I don't know. But what I do know is that, you know, because of this, this very tense, very fast-moving moment, I think it's possible and maybe even plausible that the caucus felt maybe we could make this choice, maybe it was the right choice to make, um, but the party, members in the party, uh, party executive, uh, they didn't agree, and this is why they kind of had to step back and, and kind of say, oh, actually, he's just the interim leader. Um, and, and again, I think that's why we're in this kind of really, really you know, fluctuating moment right now, because the party doesn't know, because this is pretty unprecedented, yeah. that a leader is forced out, you know, within five, six months of an election. There's, there's no rule book here. How did these guys pull this together? They're saying all the right things here, Christo. You know, we party unity and, you know, we've got to get behind whoever this is going to be. And that's that's the right stuff to say. But it seems to me as if there's some pretty deep divisions right here that need to be addressed uh, within the party itself. I don't know. Maybe they're not comfortable with the platform. Uh, maybe they weren't comfortable with Patrick Brown. Uh, Doug Ford comes into the race, and, and the, the very name, of course, conjures up ideas of, of a hard swing back to the right-wing politics of Mike Harris back in the 90s. Uh, I don't know if they want to go there either. It's it's more than choosing a leader here. It's almost as if these guys are going to have to choose an ideology as well, and that that's problematic in such a short period of time. No, uh, I, I agree 100%. I think that, in a sense, you know, in a traditional leaders' debate, let's or even, let's say, Patrick Brown, you know, these allegations come out one year ago, and so you have enough time, maybe even to just have a, a four- or five-month leadership contest. In that kind of... Uh, scenario, you can really say, okay, look, Patrick Brown is gone, then people might step up. Person A might say, look, Patrick Brown's views and actions don't represent us, but his platform was good, and I feel like it can champion that platform and bring it forward. Somebody else could also say, look, Patrick Brown was wrong on so many things, including the platform, and we need to go in a new direction. Those debates can still happen now, but it's going to be really hard to kind of formulate a new policy, because again, we're about 39 days or so like away from uh, a leadership election uh, in on March 10th, like you noted, and in that time, members, you know, are going to have this real difficult to one, you know, uh, learn all the candidates whoever ends up running, uh, determine their differences on them on personal issues, and then if any of them want to make a sharp break with the Brown platform, they're going to have to demonstrate that in a way that's very difficult to do in 40 days. So it's going to be limiting in that sense to, to, to kind of give your own personal vision. Everyone's going to be in the shadow 
of, of to one degree, the Brown accusations, uh, the Brown allegations and the Brown resignations, but also uh, on uh, comparisons to the people's platform. If somebody runs, say, Doug Ford wins the leadership and then runs on a more right-wing platform, um, you know, Kathleen Wynne and Andrew Horwath can say, look, we didn't, we didn't agree. Obviously, we, we were different than conservatives, but while they offered a somewhat reasonable platform under the previous leader, now they've gone back to Tim Hudak's right-wing, uh, you know, uh, dogmatisms. And you can't, uh, Ontarians don't want uh, uh, that kind of ideology. And I think it'll be setting up the opposition's attack points for them. Who's, we've got about a minute or so left here. Doug Ford, as we say, is the only declared candidate at this stage, but, but you've heard a lot of the other names that are being bandied about. Toronto Mayor John Tory, uh, former uh, Minister Christine Elliott, uh, John Baird's name, from, uh, who was a provincial and federal member for the long, and cabinet member for the longest time. Is, is, is there going to be a high profile here, or are people going to shy away from this, figuring maybe this is not the right time? You know, I think that's the calculation. I, you know, I think Elliot would be an interesting choice. She ran last time, uh, Patrick Brown won, of course, but she didn't get negligible support. She had a, a fair amount of support. And I think that given the allegations and given the moment, there might be a certain kind of political value in picking a woman. Um, but you're right that it could be, uh, could be someone from within the caucus or it could be uh, a relatively big name. I don't think you'll see John Tory, given that he's the sitting mayor. But I do think you might see you know, a former federal MP, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Um, and again, it's, it's not ideal that they wouldn't have a seat, but again, uh, Jagmeet Singh is running without a seat right now, mm-hmm. uh, or will be when 2019 comes along. So if that person has a kind of name recognition, it could probably work for them. Um, that would be the only thing they would have to kind of say, look, I'm a trustworthy conservative, especially if they have some kind of credence Again, it's something of a moderate that I think a lot of the broad kind of center of Ontario can trust. Then I think that they can move forward with that, maybe fairly quickly. Uh, they've probably changed some of the protocols already in the 15 minutes you and I have been talking, so we better get our update ourselves on this, too. This is a very changing landscape. Christo, thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me. Christo Avalos, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.